What do you love most about Christmas? You love most. I mean, there's so many things to love about the Christmas celebration, the Christ story and all that stuff. But what do you love most about Christmas? I'm going to give you eight seconds to really think about it. Really think about it as if it's actually a significant question. What do you love most about Christmas? All right. Let me tell you. What do you love most about Christmas? Yeah, Rod. The music. The Christmas music. How many of you hate Christmas music? Two. All right. It's not so much that I hate Christmas music, but you know, it gets turned on in my house and then plays for like six weeks. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just saying, but bless you, bless you, Rod, man of celebratory heart. All right, uh, what else? What do you love most about Christmas? Yeah. Lights. All the Christmas lights. Lights, lights is popular. The light coming in the darkness. Behold, those in darkness have seen a great light. And uh, scriptural answer from Callie there. The lights, that was popular. Yes, sexy Chinese chick in the back. Anticipation. You love anticipation the most. Yeah, there are a number of ways that anticipation is celebrated. Just the coming of the Christ story, and then we have all those anticipatory rituals like gift giving and stuff like that. Robin? Hope for a positive outcome. That's interesting. So that's sort of a part of the Christmas celebration uh, for you every year. Hope for a positive outcome. You could unpack that. But if you're going to hope for something, it better be a positive outcome. Right? That's cool. Yeah, Mike? I speak for all the men here. Lower prices on even bigger TV screens. Lower prices on even bigger TV screens. Uh, how long have you been at this church, buddy? <laughs> Ashton. Gathering of family and loved ones. That's good. They've got a new loved one on the way. It's going to be a very special Christmas celebration for them this year. All right, one more. One more. Who's got? Yeah, Gigi. Gifts. Gifts. <laughs> Giving or getting? <laughs> getting. Getting. At least... At least she's honest about it. No pressure. All right. Uh, I noticed that when we talk about like the favorite, the favorite parts of Christmas, uh, nobody said politics. Nobody said that politics were your favorite part of Christmas. You know, because that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about politics. Joy. Yeah. Yeah. Peace, hope for a positive outcome. Now you're feeling it. Now you see where I'm going with this. Because uh, uh, Christmas, I think, is a, a profoundly uh, uh, political uh, event. And it certainly was for those of us, uh, for those people who received uh, the first Christmas there in the first century AD. We're in this uh, sermon series uh, called There is a God and His Ways Are Smart. And it was occasioned, as I have explained over the past seven or eight weeks, uh, by, uh, by my brokenheartedness uh, about what I was seeing in the world, and particularly the world around us, in our, uh, you know, in our Aina, in our country, and stuff like that, uh, that people uh, were just getting wiped out by this season of, of the world that we have been in. 
and particularly, you know, I think about Christians, I think about spiritual pilgrims and pursuers, and just terrible things have happened. Like, you know, uh, church attendance in America has been cut in half. Churches have been decimated over the past three years. There's been something in society, something in culture that has been just unprecedentedly murderous on the spiritual level. And people are just dropping like flies. And then in my own sphere, you know, I, I've just seen literally hundreds of Christians just stop being Christian uh, and drop out of church. Our own church was devastated and many churches around the island was. And, 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 and I just reflected deeply on that, weepingly, uh, not surprisingly so, um, and tried to figure out, well, what the heck is going on here? Why, why are people's souls dying and why are we tearing each other apart? Uh, and we've gone through some of those questions. And, and the first half of the sermon series, we just really focused on some fundamentals. Like there are really, really good reasons to believe in God and God's message. You know, we went through uh, uh, elements of science. We, we took a look at the nature of the Bible, which I think should convince people there is a God, even if you don't believe in the Bible. It's an inexplicable document in its very nature. And, uh, and you know, we talked about, um, you know, um, some of the big moral questions of the day, uh, which I think the enemy has uh, used in our lives to destroy us in a terrorist part, to seed doubt, but also to seed acrimony and contention among us. Uh, and then we get mad at each other and, and uh, you know, end up uh, splitting churches, as both uh, Timothy and Ashton spoke about. It's just been uh, a heinous season in that regard um, for no reason other than Christians bought it. They bought into the darkness. And they found in the darkness some sort of false power and false comfort and false morality and false justification that they used, right? They bought into it and it ended up just incredible destruction. So I've just been terribly, terribly grieved by that. And I really feel like the world does need hope. It does need reconciliation, as we heard about earlier from our Advent couple. Um, and... Um, the world does need Jesus, you know. Does need the real, accurate, um, illuminated uh, Christ uh, now, as always. Um, and the last subject that I wanted to talk about in this sermon series is uh, the subject of politics. Uh, I don't know if you have noticed, but I think that our politics has really driven people apart recently. Anyone agree? Uh, and I think it's pretty clear, even in the most casual observer, that politics has, has torn apart churches and politics has torn apart families and, and politics has caused a lot of Christians to sort of jettison uh, their faith. Um, it is easy to rag on politicians, right, and political leaders and stuff like that. And uh, in American history, you know, politicians have never been like anything but targets for teasing. <laughs> like we've, we've, we've always uh, enjoyed poking fun at our uh, political leaders, you know? So they're kind of respected, kind of not respected. It's easy to be critical of politicians and what they do, but that's not what I'm talking about uh, today. I don't think that's what God would have us talk about. What I'm talking about is what you might call the spirit of politics. Uh, and that is the spirit to which Jesus was intended as an antidote. And it actually figures rather prominently 
uh, in the Christmas story. What do I mean by the spirit of politics? Well, the spirit of politics is the idea that, that we must be controlled, that people must be controlled for good to happen. And uh, it might mean that you want to control other people <laughs> uh, to get what you want, but there's a spirit of control that's all wrapped up in the spirit of, of politics. There's sort of a false order, a false justification of, of control. And God is different. God is different than that. We've already talked about that in the course of this uh, sermon series. Uh, demons want to control you and make a puppet out of you. The spirit of God wants to restore your self-control. Right? Uh, for uh, the spirit... That uh, God did not give you a, a, a spirit of, of timidity, a spirit of fear. He gave you a spirit of, of uh, power, a sound mind, and self-control. God's trying to turn you into a mature individual. Um, and he's actually not very controlling. We call him king. We call him lord. We call him master. We say that he reigns. But he's actually very gracious uh, in the way that he does that. And that's sort of an antidote to the spirit of politics and competition for control, uh, which is really what politics is often about. Uh, ironically, uh, I studied uh, political science. I have a PhD in political science. I gave a lot of years to study it. And I studied political science because I love policy. I love uh, solutions and social solutions for things and stuff. Like I love policy. I hate politics. <laughs> which is an entirely different thing. Uh, uh, my, uh, my first big job interview coming out of college when I was an undergrad is uh, I was in uh, California. I was in the Bay Area where I went to school and um, uh, very political place. Um, and I got a job interview for a regional politician, um, a county commissioner who was in San Jose. And the job was as an analyst for traffic policy for all of the Bay Area. So basically, I got to look at traffic issues for the whole Bay Area and analyze them and to come up with really good solutions and policies. You know, it's like piecing together a puzzle and stuff like that. It's like, I love stuff like that. You know, like the big chessboard of traffic and whatnot. So that was the job. And I went in there and I interviewed for it. I was working for, I had part-time for this like political think tank at the time. They recommended me. And I thought it was a slam dunk. And they loved me in the interview. And the county commissioner loved me. And they're like, oh, you're going to get the job. In fact, we love you so much, we're going to expand the job for you. That was the pitch. And they told me this after the interview. They gave me a phone call. It's like, look, you got the job, but we're going to give you even more responsibility. We want you to be the lead speechwriter uh, for the, the county commissioner. We want you to be the political guru for the county commissioner. It's like, wow, that's a lot of responsibility for a 20-year-old kid. Uh, and so I said, uh, thank you, I'll get back to you. And then I had to think about it. Uh, because the new job description they sent me was, uh, you have to not just analyze traffic politics, you have to promote the political agenda of this candidate. Okay, some of you have caught it. Because like, I might not agree with everything that this, that this candidate um, gives. So, so I phoned them up and I said, look, you know, I love to be an analyst. I think I'm really good at that. But if you want me to be like the chief speechwriter uh, for this candidate, I have to say that I don't agree with everything that she's trying to promote. You know, 
And I thought that would be an okay conversation. That was not an okay conversation. <laughs> Immediately, uh, her chief of staff screamed at me over the phone. Screamed at me over the phone. Do you realize that you're talking about her identity? Identity, identity, identity. <laughs> you know, this isn't her politics. This is who she is, you know. Uh, and I just got chastised. You can imagine how the rest of the conversation went. And that was the end of my career in California state politics, right there. Just boom, it was over. Uh, and so I went to work for a software company instead you know, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and did that for about a year, uh, which I did not uh, enjoy. Um, there's a big difference between like constructing policy and being in politics, right? And the difference gets very personal. It gets identity. It gets moral, doesn't it? Uh, and that was the, my beginning and my end. Uh, it took about 20 minutes, <laughs> uh, that, that conversation. I mentioned, I think it was, I only mentioned his second service, but like, I still think about traffic policy. I could solve Honolulu traffic. <laughs> totally could. I'll give you a few reasons and pass it. Here's a, here's a Christmas gift <laughs> for you from a guy who spent way too much time you know, studying political science and policy in grad school. Um, number one, on Hawaii State freeways, the on-ramps should not come before the off-ramps. Yes. That is insane. <laughs> insane. Right? Because it's like some traffic. I know what we'll do is we'll make uh, the freeway extra cramped before anybody can get off. And the worst one, as you all know, is University Ave. Right? <laughs> Where, like, the on-ramp comes, and then, like, 40 meters later, the off-ramp comes, and every year there are bad accidents there. Every year. Uh, at a place where they have decided to squeeze H1 down to three lanes instead of four. Absolutely insane. And I guarantee you that was not a product of policy analysis. Right? That was the product of politics. So somebody got the job who should not have had that job uh, and didn't understand everything. Um, and there are other things that I would do, like Hawaii uh, leads the nation in uh, stoplights per mile. There's too many stoplights, right? There should be stop signs or like maybe not a stoplight for a crosswalk, maybe a raised crosswalk. And another thing is uh, overpasses. We tend not to use them here. And in every other metro area in, in the world uses overpasses. But what we decided to do to solve traffic is we built a rail. You want to get a fiery Christmas conversation with me. Let's talk about the rail. <laughs> Originally, it was a $5.4 billion project that the professional mainland analysts predicted would improve Honolulu traffic by a whopping 1%. Right? But that's worth $5.4 billion. Well, now the budget has been raised to $12.5 billion, and it's not done yet. And we haven't even started the complicated part, which is like from Dillingham into town, uh, it is the number one most over budget mass transit project in U.S. history. Anyway, I'm not this passionate about Jesus. I'm just as passionate about politics. But from where I sit and just given like who I am and my training and stuff like that, I think things like, you know, I know how to make national economies grow. I mean, it's really not that hard. Like there, there are data on things like this. And it's not hard. 
right? Um, you know, it, we, have, we have understood this for a long, long time, uh, scholars and academics. It's just that politics get in the way. I know what makes for good educational policies. It's really easy to measure what makes schools work and what doesn't. That's actually very, very easy to measure. You know, it has to do with like teaching, poli teaching policy and structure and actually who gets to teach and how entrepreneurial they are and stuff like that. It's actually really easy. There are large experiments done on this in some cities, all of which were canceled because they worked. Um, mostly people aren't interested in that. And those are not the debates that make up our political season. Debates that make up our middle our political season, well, they're not about policy. They're about who's in control. And that's a very different thing. That's a very different thing. And if I were to ask you to describe recent elections based on policy differences, most of you would be very challenged to do that. You don't know. But you know what you think about the candidates. Right? And that's kind of how American politics has become structured because that's what the candidates want. Right? Because it makes them seem very, very important and it is in their political interest to make you think that your vote for them is dire and consequential on a very personal level. Um, you voted for who you wanted to have power in the last election. I doubt very much that you voted according to certain policy analyses. Um, and, and politicians taught you to do that, and I could go on and on about that, but the dictum here is that all governments want to grow and all politicians want to control more things uh, because the bigger the government is and the more a given politician or set of politicians control, the more important they are, the more resources they have, the more secure their jobs will be, and that's just in democracies. Uh, of course, there are other places in, in which... Um, People don't get much say in it, but governments want to grow. And the unique American experiment in politics, the occasion for the American Revolution, was actually not about a different form of government per se. It was about limiting the scope of government. We were the first country in world history to, by law and by popular decree, limit what government could do. It was limited government. And it turned out that that experiment was unbelievably successful. And that very soon after the Americans did it, because it worked so well, the rest of this country started imitating it. And now in just you know, short time, it really didn't take much longer than a century, almost the entire Western world went, we say, democratic. Right? They, they went limited government as well. And it unleashed a wave of prosperity and security and peace in human history that humans had never, ever seen before that time. Do you know that there is no single recorded instance of a free democracy fighting against a free democracy. It's never happened. You, know, you want to pursue world peace. That's how to do it. That's how to do it. There have been lots of wars in the 20th century, but what it was is like free democratic states versus not free tyrannical states. Um, that's, what it, that's what it was. Unbelievable experiment, and if you're a history buff like me or a political scientist like me, it's like clear as day. But I don't think that's the history that's taught in colleges anymore. Um, we almost eradicated world poverty. And before COVID, uh, only uh, something like 6% of the world population lived below the poverty line. We cut it in half in the, pre in the 12 years previous to the COVID shutdowns. Uh, and in Jesus' time, world poverty ran at about 96%. 
96% of the population below the poverty line. We came a long way. Uh, and that's really, really good news. Um, the, I want to read um, what God thinks about um, governments. And this, believe it or not, is a setup for the Christmas story, so bear with me. I don't mean to, to rag on politicians. I just want to set up the context into which Jesus came. Uh, and this is a story about uh, the old age of the great prophet Samuel, who had sort of loosely governed Israel through words of God, from God, for most of his life. And he had secured peace in the country against the Philistines. Uh, people banded together around Samuel's call and drove out the Philistines, who were very oppressive and ungodly. When Samuel grew old, I'm just going to read really quickly 1 Samuel 8. This is not going to be on the big board. He appointed his sons as judges for Israel. They became sort of the, the prophets, the de facto leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after a dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Samuel was a great prophet, but he did not raise great sons. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, and they said to him, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. We too want to be ruled. Dun, dun, dun. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, it bothered him. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing now to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, Samuel, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And Samuel told them the words of the Lord. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He'll take your sons and make them serve his chariots and horses, and they'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of 50, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots, and he'll take your daughters too. To be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, he will... Take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves for himself and will give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain, of your vintage, and give it to his officers and his attendants, your manservants and maidservants. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a ruler over us. We want to be ruled. Uh, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to rule over us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And Samuel said, well, okay. Uh, the Lord will give it uh, to you then. Uh, uh, the Lord's view is that this desire to be ruled and this desire to be controlled and this philosophy that you need to be controlled is actually a very dangerous thing because once you start giving people control, they will take it and they won't serve you. And what will happen is that government will grow. And that's been a great truth uh, in history. And government grows until it serves itself uh, rather than the people. So let's say that now you're under the thumb of a really bad government. What's the solution? Is it to replace it with a more powerful good government? And now we begin the Jesus story. 
And I want to read really quickly from Isaiah chapter 9, what I think is probably the most famous Christmas passage of all time uh, in terms of Old Testament prophecies, that is. Um, And it's a story from, it's a prophecy given by Isaiah over five centuries before Christ. He was called the Prince of Prophets. This guy was the dude. And, uh, and Callie quoted from uh, this prophecy earlier about the light dining, uh, shining in the darkness. And more importantly, it is the prophecy that Linus quotes in the Peanuts Christmas special. And so America knows this one. America knows this one. Uh, and I'm just going to read Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, and you will, know the, you will know the verses. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There you are. <clears throat> On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, the last time the Lord uh, destroyed a national enemy of Israel, You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. There's a segue. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he'll reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, I'm just kind of speaking to the Jesus veterans here. We know that when Jesus showed up as Messiah on the earth and he started walking and ministering, people thought that he would be a political Messiah. Were they correct? In a way, right? During Jesus' day, he very carefully avoided all political engagements. He refused to be a political leader. He refused to be a military messiah for sure. But people were expecting a political and military messiah. Why? Well, you can excuse them for expecting a great politician, a great political leader, because of prophecies like Isaiah 9. Does it not sound incredibly political? Right? He will break the rod of oppression. Do you know what that sounded like to a bunch of Jews who were occupied by a crushing Roman army? Right? He will establish his justice and righteousness. Righteousness is just another Hebrew word for justice. Um, He will establish justice. Do you know what they expected of the Messiah to come? And then uh, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Government wants to grow. And of the increase of his government, the Messiah's government, there will be no end. And so Jesus showed up and he started doing miracles. And they were like, yes, political victory. And Jesus was like, no, let me educate you. 
on the proper way uh, to think about this. And this was the mindset into which Jesus was born. And it's helpful if you're gonna understand his life story in the world to kind of understand that. We know that the, the Messiah wasn't political in any conventional sense, but you can totally see why they expected and desperately wanted otherwise. Because they were truly oppressed, right? Not fake oppression not like ideological oppression. No, they were like getting murdered type oppression. Um, and so they desperately wanted Jesus to be political. They want to be able to say, yo, my king can beat up your king, which is the same thing that people asked for in 1 Samuel 8. We're scared. Let us have a king because, you know, people aren't going to rally to your sons, Samuel. You know, God's not going to provide security. We need politics to provide our security. We need to be controlled, and we will trade you. We will give over control of our lives if you give us safety. Uh, and boy, I think we have seen that a ton in recent political culture. Uh, so despite staggering injustice, Jesus very assiduously avoided engaging politics in his lifetime. When people said, when is your kingdom coming? He said, uh-uh-uh, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Right? Uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yeah. Render under Caesar that which is his. But give God what you should give God. That was that sermon, right? When Jesus lacked tax money, he sent Peter fishing. He pulled up a fish, reached in the fish's mouth, pulled out a gold coin, paid his taxes. April is coming, people. Um, you know, the big uh, political moral issue of Jesus' day was divorce, the sexual politics of Jesus' day. Uh, and he refused to comment on it except to speak about it with grace. Yeah, you can get divorced, but God doesn't want it. Be careful. You know, it's the hardness of your hearts that makes you have this debate. Uh, he said, we talked about that just uh, last week. Uh, when Jesus went into the temple, which was the heart of Jewish counter-oppression politics, he ransacked the temple instead of ransacking Roman armies. Jesus did not understand. He did not understand the proper way to do things. Um, one of the most political teachings I feel that he gave was the teachings of the persistent, the teaching about the persistent widow. It was about this widow uh, that was treated unjustly by the courts. And so Jesus said to her, said about her, well, she's persistent. What she's going to do is going to continually bug the judge. And the judge, who doesn't care about justice or people, is eventually going to give her her way because she just persisted in bothering him. You remember that parable? And then there's this ominous final line in the parable. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, do you recognize the justice before you? Do you recognize how Jesus is the justice that you were crying out for? And the crowd, of course, did not, <laughs> did not. And they would eventually kill him because he was the wrong kind of Messiah. Uh, he wasn't godly enough. He didn't care enough about justice. <clears throat> um, so Jesus downplayed uh, politics as if to say, there's no hope for justice there, uh, guys. Uh, he was decisively apolitical, but evidently established a form of government that we should all understand and respect. And my question is, do you? Do you? Do you understand the proper way to govern? 
uh, people because that's actually what, what Jesus uh, showed. And, um, and there's a lot of it in the manner of the Christmas uh, story. The people thought that a strong government was the proper answer to the strong, oppressive government uh, of Rome. Right? You've got to fight fire with fire. But God's answer was actually a, a baby Jesus born into poverty who started a movement based on person-to-person influence rather than governmental control. A completely different philosophy of world change. Completely different. He started a movement of very small, weak, good people who would unleash on the world peace and prosperity and reconciliation like the world had never seen. And it worked. And part of me preaching this sermon series is to tell you very candidly, oh, it worked. Don't be fooled into thinking it didn't. Right? The Jesus movement of small, weak people who influence person to person rather than seizing the levers of worldly power has worked amazingly well. And wherever, wherever the church of Jesus has taken root, the lives of the people have been greatly improved, greatly freed, greatly prospered, greatly. It really, really works. But we're constantly told by political culture to give up on that and to instead celebrate control. Right? That's the spirit of politics versus uh, the spirit of Jesus or Jesus government, however you want to think about it. I think freedom from the spirit of politics begins in the mind with realizing that you can change the world without controlling the levers of political power. Just, just want to say that again in case anybody missed it. I think freedom from the spirit of politics begins in the mind with realizing that you can change the world without controlling the levers of political power. Jesus was entirely about that. Entirely about that. Um, and don't be uh, distracted ever uh, by politics, therefore. Don't let it become something that it should not. And I think what happened in the past three or four years is that we let it become something that it should not. And wherever politics became something that it should not be, souls were murdered en masse. Super dangerous. Super, super, super dangerous. On the other hand, the opposite spirit, the spirit of Christ, which is like, you know, person to person influences hope and generosity and grace. I mean, I don't have to explain Jesus to you, do I? Uh, except to say that it's not political. <laughs> Jesus is not political. Wherever you move in that, souls are harvested to life en masse. Uh, and it's really uh, a decisive uh, distinction. And so part of the Christmas message, by design, I mean very, very plainly stated uh, in Scripture, both in poignant prophecies like Isaiah 9 or the many examples from Jesus' life, uh, part of the Christmas message is uh, uh, government is not your hope. Well, what you think of as government is not your hope. Politics is not your hope. And I, and I hope that as we enter a new political season in 2024, and buckle your seatbelts, brothers and sisters, because this one is going to be even more interesting than the last. Yeah.
as we enter it, please just don't give in to the political spirit. It's all about who's in control. I don't trust you. We're going to control you guys, right? You guys need to be controlled for us to be safe and prosper. Don't buy into that BS. Do not go there even a little bit. I don't know how many people told me last national election time, I can't be in a church where somebody who supports that other candidate. I thought you followed Jesus. No, no, no. Politics intervenes. Politics triumphs. I almost said trumps, but I can't say that. (laughs) Because half of you would leave. Such murderousness. And it's so clear. I mean, it's so stupid. It's so obvious. It's not even a sophisticated attack on the people of God. But the people of God just bought into it wholesale. And just let themselves get taken out. It's just unbelievably tragic. It's embarrassingly tragic. um, The way that, that, that we bought it. Anyway, so freedom begins in the mind with realizing that you don't need it. You don't need it. Um, And Jesus, who had every excuse to correct the political situation of his day, chose not to, and to play the slow, true game of love and service, uh, rather than uh, the short, destructive game of political uh, control. So the Christmas message is, yeah, government is not your hope. You don't need a ruler. You need a lord. That's a very, very different thing. A very, very different thing. Rulers want your obedience so they take your power. A Lord wants you to be responsible so he gives you power. A ruler wants your obedience so he takes your power. A Lord wants you to be responsible so he gives you power. He empowers you. He empowers individuals. He empowers people. Right? He doesn't come to lord it over you. He comes to be servant of all, to build you up. And, and that's the difference. That's, that's what Jesus demonstrated, right? Um, Jesus doesn't compel anyone. It's just an extraordinary thing that the almighty God of the universe doesn't compel anyone. He merely invites. He doesn't compel. He just invites. I wish that characterized our political life in America, it used to. You know, he doesn't compel, he just invites, he doesn't demand, he just serves. Um, so uh, I'm all for uh, blessing you with the ability to discern spirits and discerning spirits politically, um, I think often boils down to this. Does it feel like control? Does it feel like compulsion, shame, judgment? Or does it feel like free responsibility? Does it feel like empowerment? And if you think about that, does this feel like I'm being controlled, like I'm being compelled, like I'm being shamed? That's a bad political spirit. If it feels like, well, I'm being asked to take responsibility and to really be powerful and influential, that's a good political spirit. One feels like the world and the other feels like Jesus. And we were warned about this 1,500 years ago, excuse me, 3,500 years ago by the prophet Samuel, 3,000 years ago. 
uh, and uh, it was demonstrated with Jesus, and we just have to be careful which spirit we buy into going forward. And I think the world would really be blessed by a Christmas message that feels like freedom and empowerment. It's like, God bless you this season. You know, I invite you to participate in a celebration of light and anticipation and hope and gifts. Joy and big TV sets. Well, not that last one, (laughs) but you know what I mean. And reconciliation for Pete's sake. That would be fantastic. That would be uh, fantastic. Um, so, uh, and if none of that makes sense to you, uh, then at least, rem- at least remember that I said this. Blue water uh, in the upcoming political season, uh, because of the Christ child, mainly, will be a judgment-free zone where politics are concerned. Be a judgment-free zone. And if we can't talk about policy here, because of the politics of it, then we have just failed woefully to be a community of grace, love, and acceptance. Judgment-free zone. Judgment-free zone. So turn to somebody next to you and say, I won't judge you, even though you deserve it. (laughs) Are you red or are you blue? Go ahead. You want to know. You want to know. You know, just say, I tolerate you really hard. <laughs> it's a different spirit. It's a different spirit uh, that, that, that Jesus brings. Uh, so um, I've, talked, I've talked about a lot of uh, things in this sermon series. That wraps up the sermon series and kicks off the Christmas series uh, all at the same time. And I've talked about a lot of things that have caused a lot of destruction among us. But I think, I think that political spirit has probably caused more destruction in, in our body, but in the church at large, not to mention the world, um, than, than anything else. Uh, and so uh, I just want to give us uh, a minute here uh, as we close um, um, to repent, if you need to, to repent of buying into the spirit of politics, right? To the degree that you bought into it, to the degree that you shamed anyone in the last four years uh, because of political stances, repent of it. Repent of it. Repent of it now. Repent of it now. And then you'll be an agent of healing and freedom, grace, and, well, Christmas in the world in the next political season. They're going to need you. They're going to need the Christians to be Christians, you know? Right? They need the world to be light. Those in darkness have seen a great light. A great light. Oh, Galilee, <laughs> you who are oppressed, the light has dawned in you. It's all right. It's going to be fine. This has been working for 2,000 years, and it continues to go forward. But you got to just repent of the nonsense, if you would. Repent of the nonsense and trust in the truth. So... Holy Spirit, deal with us uh, for the next 60 seconds at least. And we want to repent of buying into the spirit of politics. And all the
murderousness it entails. All the contempt it has fostered in our world. Of the increase of your government, Lord, uh, there will be uh, no end. I pray that you would uh, reign in us uh, by empowering us uh, to be free and to spread uh, your gospel maturity, freedom, responsibility, love, and sacrifice in the world. And I pray that you'd unburden us from all that the world tries to burden us with. That we would stand simply for simple truth. Uh, that we would be confident in the message that we have to preach. Uh, enduringly patient uh, against the onslaught of uh, the, the lying cult of the world the true spirit of Christ. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen.